welcome to another episode of Interactive Control, the place to get all your burning industrial control questions answered. I'm your host, Michelle Rosinski. Today my guest is Ed Turkley. Ed is currently the Global Industrial Cybersecurity Architect for Nexus Controls, a Baker Hughes business. With more than 18 years of cybersecurity experience, Ed provides strategic solutions and expert guidance grounded in a position of risk management and safety. His expertise lies in both strategic assessment and resolving real security challenges in oil and gas, power generation, mining, DOD, and homeland security. Past accomplishments include former deputy CISO, where he designed and implemented a complete cybersecurity program, several NIST cybersecurity framework assessments, commercialized new technologies, and directed the DHS ICE Security Operations Center. Ed is also a fellow of the Academy of Emergency Managers. In this episode, Ed and I discuss current emerging threats and attack vectors facing the industrial automation space. Let's listen in to learn more about this important topic. Hi, Ed. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Michelle. Thanks for having me. Of course. Our pleasure. So before we get into the nitty gritty on this, talking about the threat landscape, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about how your roles or past experience has led to your knowledge on industrial cybersecurity. Oh, that's, that's a good question. So, I, you know, I was fortunate enough for one of my first jobs with the U.S. Navy. They introduced me to cybersecurity at the time and and I wasn't even considering it back then, but I had a passion for really understanding the big picture. My my bachelor's at the time was in philosophy, believe it or not. But <laughs> I really enjoyed thinking strategically, yeah, and, and then trying to structure things down to the dependencies. And when I learned about cybersecurity, I found the field vastly void of really any strategic thinking. Uh, mm-hmm. And luckily for me, I was um, I had a lot of training that the Navy provided and um, Growing up in the Washington, D.C. area helped a lot, too. Um, I was trained by the NSA how to think strategically and do risk assessments and understand the business uh, challenges and where cybersecurity can have cause an impact. Um, I was also fortunate to work at the Department of Homeland Security under um, then-Secretary Janet Politino, the DHS acting secretary, and my role was uh, managing the Cybersecurity Operations Center for for um, DHS, and we had a, a very tight service level agreement to contain cyber attacks within four hours, um, which is pretty tight. Um, and yeah. you know, we we had to deal with with nation states, and we had all sorts of attacks: denial of service, uh, beaconing attacks, malware attacks, classified media spills, and uh, we were extremely aggressive. We had a team. Uh, doing an incident response, and my role was always improving that incident response. Um, by the time I really wasn't thinking about industrial cyber, um, it came to me when I was assigned to help hydro dams meet NERCSIP compliance right after 9-11, and, wow. and that's where I really got the taste for that. I visited a lot of very um, amazing places. Uh, I remember visiting one of the big dams out there and, and, and being on the um, on the floor and the ground level where the uh, skater was located in the dam and literally employees have bikes to ride on the plant floor because these GE turbines were just lined up 
um, just a massive infrastructure. Um, and I've immediately got attracted to it and, and the more human side of it with industrial because a lot of the industrial customers are new to cyber. And it's just amazing to me because it's what creates, you know, some of the most important things we have in our, uh, in our life, electricity, you know, um, clean water, water, yeah, things like that. Medicine. Yeah. yeah. So from there, you know, I've spent a lot of time on the industrial side um, uh, and fell in love with it. Uh, I, I uh, ended up over at Newmont Mining. I was a deputy CISO, and we were actively being attacked uh, there. And we, we drove a $35 million cybersecurity investment to address the, the, the a lot of the different things we had going on there that I probably shouldn't, shouldn't mention. But we had camps <laughs> all over the world. <laughs> um, we even had the FBI uh, help us out a little bit. It was, uh, it was quite a feat, and I, I learned a lot as a deputy CISO, it was a very challenging role. Um, um, we had nobody, just me and my CISO, and at the time, no cybersecurity team. So it was quite an investment that we had to uh, bring to the board of directors and quite a project to roll out. And then here at Nexus Controls, I think I've been here about seven years now, maybe eight. Um, you know, it's been wonderful. You know, now we get to see real broadly all kinds of different challenges, customer challenges in the nuclear community. Um, uh, it's public information that we provide cybersecurity solutions for Boost Power, one of the largest nuclear companies in the world. Um, you know, we, we, we have a lot of experience with uh, renewables, uh, with wind, uh, both onshore and offshore, and power generation, uh, oil and gas, uh, pulp and paper, and lots of different things like chemical processing, uh, even some mining. So the experience has really been amazing, uh, especially for a field that is uh, so unique uh, within all the other cybersecurity fields you could choose. Yeah. Wow. So that certainly sounds like a wide range of experience across a lot of different spaces. Um, and, you know, for you and Nexus Controls, it sounds like there's a lot of experience that helps um, directly related to industrial cybersecurity. Um, I wonder if we could get bikes at our job to ride around on the floor. I wish it it's probably not big enough to justify, but that would be pretty fun. <laughs> yeah, it would be neat. Yeah. Um, that sounds so cool, though. Wow, that must have been such a big place. So moving on, I thought we'd start with asking if you can provide a definition for what a threat landscape is, just to make sure that everybody listening is on the same page. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there's, that's a good question. So there's some there's some common um, threat landscapes that our industrial customers face. That's uh, true for all of them, and, and really for lots of other cybersecurity customers too. Um, you know, what we have is we have a, a need to meet security challenges when we have a lot of legacy control systems. Um, there's always a limited amount of expert resources. There's always a need to account for all this modern technology. And then there's always this ever-increasing, you know, sophisticated human adversary that we need to provide uh, protections against. Some of the things when we think about threat landscape, um, we think about the type of threat actors. Um, there's different types. There's the there, there's the hacktivists, which may be environmentalists that are trying to um, cause a threat activity, seeking to call attention to their, you know, their their issues um, or try to embarrass the organization. There are 
internal threats. You know, there are um, um, internal employees that are oftentimes employees that are the most immediate um, uh, cause of cyber attacks or uh, actually happens a lot often, a lot more often than people realize. And these type of attacks can happen either um, willingly or unwillingly. Uh, it could be by normal accidents. Then we have like criminals, criminal gangs that um, realizing the value of um, uh, trying to make money off the disruption of uh, critical infrastructure uh, in order to extort money. Um, and this is an area we'll talk more about because it's definitely in increased in our space. And finally, we have the nation states, um, um, you know, conflict between countries and every country has a military with, uh, with cyber bullets, right? Um, and they would obviously increase pressure and do a lot of the more sophisticated cybersecurity attacks and want to gain a foothold in case of uh, war. Um, um, and, you know, getting a hold in the energy supplies is key for every uh, military. But with regard to the, the legacy issues that we have, this is what makes our space different than every other cybersecurity space and out there. Um, we have and always will have out-of-date, unpatchable, and, uh, and legacy systems. And our plants run for 24-7 for, you know, a year nonstop, sometimes longer. And there's no time to reboot them or turn them off. Um, so, you know, everything's vulnerable in that regard. Uh, I'm vulnerable, you're vulnerable, and we have to design our cybersecurity approach without it being a, a, a big rip and replace of equipment. Um, this is equipment that will be there for 10 to 30 years. And so we have to be more proactive, more preventive, and more responsive. Um, and that's, that's the summary, I think, of a, the threat landscape that, uh, our industrial customers have. Yeah, and, and some of the equipment has already been there for 20 or 30 years, and it was created during a time when nobody was thinking about cybersecurity. So it doesn't have all of the things in place that you think of today with, you know, more consumer products. So it, it's, and, and like you said earlier, it's making critical infrastructure that people need to live. So it's, there's a lot of potential risk and it's, you know, the stakes are very high. Yeah. And it's also interesting how cybersecurity um, requirements and regulations have evolved. It kind of started in the financial sector first. Well, they were mm -hmm. always with the military, but then it started in financial. Then they, then they moved to healthcare, protecting, you know, your personal health information. And then, and, and then it sort of evolves further, uh, and now it's here in, in, in industrial. It's amazing that it took so long to get here because, you know, without energy, we don't have a cybersecurity domain, as an yeah. example. Totally. Yeah. So I wonder if you could talk about the current uh, threats and attack vectors that are emerging and, you know, very are relevant right now. Yeah. We have a lot of firsthand experience with that as we are a global company and we've been protecting against uh, a lot of the uh, intelligent human adversaries and they come in various forms. Um, some of the um, insider threats, I, I have to bring that one up first because, you know, insider threats, why might not be the most glamorous, they do exist. Um, often, you know, attackers, uh, will, you, know, you won't know until it's too late. And they represent the largest percentage of the type of attacks that are out there. They can be intentional or, or, or non-intentional. And, and I'll talk a little bit more about the impact of the, that type of threat actor um, later on. But 
that is one particular threat attack vector that is constantly being watched and needs to be watched and can't be ignored. The other is social engineering for plant staff, operational technology staff, industrial um, uh, staff, you know, human hacking humans is as old as it gets. And, and while it may not be the, you know, the, the latest type of attack vector, social engineers, they leverage this human weakness to, you know, want to share information with each other. And these are some of the most intelligent people on, on you know, walking around. They, unfortunately, their IQs do not necessarily have a, a moral compass. And huh, what's yeah. key here is, you know, the industrial cybersecurity education is key here. Uh, it's critical to protect our customers um, from that sort of uh, type of attack, which can lead to loss of sensitive information or critical information or even physical destruction. The other is um, data leakage. Um, you know, all attackers, um, they want to gain a foothold and maintain a level of persistence. Um, what are they doing? You know, why do they want this persistence? And uh, there's a lot of data in the industrial environment that, um, that they're, they would like to collect. And we'll talk more about that, too, because a lot of people don't think of the data in, in the plant being important, but it actually is. Um, ransomware is the, the, probably the headline, right? But what's really interesting about ransomware um, is that it's really changed our customers' way of looking at how they address risk, the risk calculation. They, our customers can no longer depend on, um, you know, transferring their risk, um, such as like cybersecurity insurance. Um, nowadays in the U.S., if, uh, if you're paying a ransom and it's deemed to be a criminal, it could be deemed a criminal act by the FTC if it's under a sanctioned entity. So the customers need to take the matters in their own hands with this ransomware and its growth, um, its sophistication, we'll talk more about later. It's something um, that everyone's paying attention to. So can I just make then, sure I understand what you're saying is if a, even if yeah. a company wanted to pay the, the person that set up the ransomware on their equipment, they may not be able to legally because it may be That's against right. the law. Oh, wow. That's a real catch-22. It really is. In the past, you know, um, the insurance companies, uh, you know, they they knew, um, you know, it was just easier to pay the ransom. But what you're doing is you're enabling a, these, right. these threat actors to continue doing what they're doing. And it's a, it's a triple whammy because now, you know, they're in a, a rock and a hard place now because uh, not paying the ransomware could, could put you out of business. Uh, if you don't have the right technology, um, you know, right. to protect yourself. And it's not just the ransomware. Um, you know, what, what the ransomwares are doing is, in addition to ransoming, they're, they're, they're stealing your data. So they have leverage, even if you uh, don't pay the ransom, that they can publicly expose it. Wow, yeah. Yeah. And then lastly, I guess the um, it's the nation states that are out there. Um, almost every country, as I said, has a military and almost everyone has cyber bullets. And um, they have what we call advanced persistent threats uh, or APTs, which basically means they are fully funded, well-organized, and they, they have the means, motivation, and an intent. Um, when we deal with nation states, we have to break one of those three-legged stools between the means, motivation, and intent. And, um, you know, the, the means being the financial resources, the motivation, um, um, you know, they know you exist and, and they, you know, they find it hard to, uh, to find you or intent, you know, the willingness to, uh, 
cause harm and a lot of times diplomacy is really important at the nation state level. Um, here, so we, we have very sophisticated attacks that happen to our customers and include, including the supply chain ones. Um, we've seen examples in the public like SolarWinds. Um, and here's where sophisticated attacks like man in the middle and things like that we'll talk about later. But we have ways to break down, make it almost nearly just so hard for the nation states to make it worth their time. Yeah, so those are the those are the ones from the attack vectors. Yeah, I could certainly see the nation state category being extremely dangerous because they do have much more means to form an attack and time to put into it. Mm -hmm. Right. So. Um, OK, so now that you've touched on the the different threats that are you know, really relevant right now to be aware of. Can you go through and give an example of each and the, the potential impact to a customer? Sure, yeah. So, you know, we talk about insider threats, but the thing that's interesting about them is, you know, they can be intentional or non-intentional. Well, the non-intentional ones, it's what we call normal accidents. And for example, is plugging in a phone uh, to charge your battery um, normal accident, uh, or was it malicious? Was it intended? And if it brought malware to the process control, um, you know, same thing with USB sticks. It's difficult to determine whether it's normal, uh, normal malicious, or normal accident. Um, and then, you know, of course, in the insider threat, you have seemingly legit devices, maybe a voltmeter, for example, that uh, is malicious in nature and design. Was it intentional or was it just simply dropped in the toolbox? Um, you know, even even we have a type of attack called juice jacking. Um, it's, it's basically a power cord. A power cord can be malicious. Um, so the thing inside insider threats, what we're trying to do here is enforce strong privilege access controls. And this goes a long way to prevent the scope that insiders have, um, making sure that their access isn't overly excessive and something we've been doing for over a decade. Right, because even if, the not, even if they're not mm -hmm. malicious, right, sometimes these protections are being put in place to protect them from themselves just by doing something on accident or doing something that they weren't aware was malicious. So that makes a lot mm -hmm. of sense. That's right. That's right. And then for the, you know, for social engineering um, of operational technology, personal, um, at the worst end, you know, if you lose control of your physical security, um, then, you know, someone's able to walk in there and pretend to be part of a cleaning crew or maybe act as an auditor, um, you know, that, that could be devastating to the process control. Uh, so having very tight physical security and uh, protecting uh, against that type of uh, attack and uh, saying, well, I'm this important person, you need to let me in, you know, that's the worst thing. But at the other end is just simply electronic, you know, people calling by phone, seeking confidential information, maybe um, asking for your password or to help fix your computer issues or, you know, try to obtain intellectual property on configuration shipments, payments. These type of attacks, we have to do a lot of education and training uh, to help those personnel deal with the human element of, of cybersecurity. And then data leak, which I mentioned that one. Um, when you think about industrial environments, most people don't think we have sensitive information. 
but that's not true. Uh, you know, it's true we're not a bank. We don't have social security cards. We don't have, you know, private health information. But we do have extremely sensitive configuration information. Food and beverage brewers, um, you know, they all have vast amounts of intellectual property. It's all running real time in that control system. It's what manages that process control. Um, and that, you know, that process control only shuts down maybe once a year. So consider what is a plant, you know, or any critical process mission? You know, what's the plant's policies and procedures derived from? It's not from cybersecurity. It's, it's what the plant does at a high level and how it performs in detail under adverse conditions. And what those things do is they ensure, you know, that the plant's reliable, that health, safety, and the environment and reliable production continues. That's the data, you know, we need to protect here. So, you know, what, what would an attacker need to cause, like, in a um, health and safety event? Um, if you think about the screens that operators look at in the control room, we call them human-machine interfaces. These are essentially the images of the process control, right, what governs the plant. This is the roadmap to the plant. This is how the plant performs its mission without any adverse conditions. And this uh, tells attackers exactly what it is that they need to do to cause rather a denial of view, which could lead to a loss of control. It could lead to a health and safety effect. Um, so consider the consequences if you have a screen showing low pressure when actually the state is high pressure um, and operators increase into pressure. So that's the data leakage that we're talking about here in our industrial environments. It's those configurations that are critical for the plant to run safely. Next one is, uh, we talked about ransomware. Um, you know, we recently, uh, in fact, had a customer who had ransomware, but they were using some of our technology called allow listing and the code never was able to execute. Um, it was prevented nice. from being able to execute. Mm -hmm. nice. Yeah. And, 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 but ransomware is really interesting because it's not just the industrial side. Um, you know, we've seen things like with the colonial pipeline where the IT side, uh, and we've had a few customers that received ransomware before working with us, and this has happened to them before. Their ERP systems uh, become part of that ransom, and they're on the IT side, but they don't, they contain, you know, um, the orders, that, um, the, the things that need to be done for the plant to operate, where to ship to, the everything. And if the ERP system is down, then the you know, plants are useless. Um, and this is quite a problem in the industry now, and it's important to rethink how that ERP system is being used for the, uh, for the plants uh, and providing more protections around that. Uh, we do have ransomware on the, on the industrial side too. Um, you know, if we have ransomware of an HMI or an engineering workstation, you know, this could be, it, this varies depending on the type of plant it is. Sometimes the, you have engineers that can walk in and do things manually. Right? I've seen uh, underground gas storage where if they lost the engineers and HM, the engineering workstation and the HMI, they were able to run, you know, um, on their own uh, with, with people, uh, being able to walk out into the field and, and make sure the process was being maintained. The process control could run without that equipment. But then I've also seen the other side, like say, for example, a pipeline, where if the HMI is ransomed, um, they have a loss of control. And in a pipeline, um, you know, you have two things you worry about, overpressurization, which could lead to an explosion, 
for a leak, uh, an underpressurization, which is very expensive to repressurize. So in those situations, you'll see a pipeline. You think of the, the compressor stations along the pipeline. Um, you know, it could be hundreds or, or several. And if one of them is has a loss of control, they may need to shut down the entire pipeline for safety. And then you have a another type of ransomware, which is just people who wish to sell their access. Um, so say someone is a, a very important employee, they have the keys to the kingdom, and they go to the dark web and they sell their access to a ransomware threat actor. They give their passwords away. Um, so that's another type of ransomware that people don't hear a lot about. It's very scary. Yeah. Then, and then going into the, the back to the nation states, you know, we're talking like China, Russia, North Korea, Iran. They they have nearly unlimited means, motivation, and intent in, in this budget. Um, and we're talking about they're trying to gain a foothold to cause physical destruction uh, in case of or in, in planning for war, right? Uh, what we do is we we have to leverage you know, proven technologies that are very preventive in their design that make it very hard to impossible uh, that provide a maximum security ROI. Things like allow listing that I mentioned earlier, intrusion prevention, as we don't have time to detect, we have to prevent. Um, we we, we want to engineer the control system in a way that doesn't have a, a huge attack surface, I mean, less lines of code, like maybe a thin client HMI, which doesn't have windows, mm. or maybe electronic data flows that force data, electricity, if you will, and the data in it to go one way and it's physically impossible to go the other direction. Um, and, and encryption or some type of encryption, these are the types of technologies that uh, can help us prevent uh, these nation states from getting too deep of a foothold to those crown jewels uh, that are important. Um, yeah, and then one last one, Michelle, if I can add, is that man-in-the-middle sure. uh, attack. Mm. Um, these are really what nation-states are doing. They're, you know, they're trying to get a foothold into the process control and then insert themselves between um, the plant uh, or the, the sensor and the HMI and the engineering workstation to falsify information. Um, so, for example, again, that gas turbine speed was falsified its data to the HMI being low speed, and it will signal to the DCS operator to speed up the turbine. Um, so these are the types of things that we need to protect against. This is an example of what happened, famous Stuxnet attack in Iran, where the mm. set of feeds just were spinning out of control, but everything looked fine on the, at the, in the control room. So I was just thinking about that examples. example. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I was, because I was thinking about it too, when you mentioned about data leakage, like, people thinking that the information in a control system is not dangerous, but all it really takes is a configuration setting, you know, to say, well, spin this a little faster than you usually would, and it's going to wear it out over time, and, and people aren't even going to realize. Yeah, yeah, it can, it can be summarized like that, exactly. So... So much with cyber, which is why we're turning this into a three-part series. This was part one, um, focusing on kind of what the dangers are. And then the next two parts will focus more on what can and should be done to address those. Um, But, I mean, just so much in this space. People can and do spend entire careers in cybersecurity 
um, industrial cybersecurity having its own little special spin. So, you know, it's it's really hard, I think, for customers to be able to just take care of this on their own. I think they need to, it doesn't have to be us, but they need to be working with some sort of expert would be my takeaway on, you know, in order for them to to be minimizing their risk. Yeah, there's always a amount of technical debt that is in every industry, and especially cybersecurity, and even more so with the industrial customers, because these are not um, the people that are going to be able to read lines of code on the plant floor, nor, nor should they. That's not their job. So, you know, filling that uh, with expertise and, and make designing solutions that really work for the plant, you know. The plant is about safety first, zero unplanned downtime, operational efficiency. And that's the mission in mind in which we are designing the cybersecurity so it's you know, fit for their purpose. Um, you know, if you think about it, um, and I know you're going to be having more series about the solutions, but if you think about it, there's really only three types of cybersecurity solutions uh, we can provide for our customers. and they are either very corrective, they're very detective, or they're very preventive. Um, and in those three categories, there's a fourth one that would be where you transfer your risk, but that's not working anymore for our customers. Huh? But an example of a corrective control would be to have you know, backups and hot spares, which while important, you hope you never have to use that because now you're in a business continuity situation and it's very expensive. Yeah. Um, you know, it's important to have. And then you've got the detective class of controls, which can detect the attack, right? Um, and it can provide a lot of visibility, right, into what you have. And if you don't know what you have, um, make, model, serial number, software, version, then you don't know where to start to protect yourself. So a detective thing is important, but it requires a human to respond. And in our place, in industrials, it may be that uh, we don't have that. Or, you know, that dwell time might take too long, right? We have to decrease the dwell time. Then you get into the other class, which is the preventive controls, which um, immediately deny the attack from, from occurring in the first place and gives you that maximum ROI, you know, things like we talked about encryption, data diodes, transfers, allow listing, you know, limited amount of code. Um, the point of all of this is we're looking at technologies that focus on risk elimination sometimes, not just risk reduction, depending on, you know, where our customer is in their journey and, and who their threat actors are. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. But like I said, this will be a three-part series. So we will be back with more on industrial cybersecurity. Thank you so much for giving us some of your time today. And I know you're super busy, so I really appreciate it. Thanks, Michelle. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Thanks everyone for joining me for today's episode of Interactive Control, where we discussed currently emerging threats and attack vectors facing the industrial automation space. We at Nexus Controls hope you found this discussion helpful. If so, please subscribe to our podcast and tell all your control friends about us. This was part one of a three-part series we're doing on industrial cybersecurity. 
so don't forget to check back soon for the next two episodes. You may also want to check out our website at nexuscontrols.com, where you can learn more about our industrial cybersecurity offering. Lastly, don't forget the title of this podcast is Interactive Control for a Reason. If you have a topic you'd like us to cover that we haven't yet, please send me a message over LinkedIn or email, and we'll do our best to cover it in a future episode. Thanks again, and bye for now.